Welcome back to another episode of the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast with your host, me, Ash Balls. This is a podcast where every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I read a short story or poetry written by an author from long ago or a modern-day author. The author that is read from here is then showcased for the week on the Facebook page by the same name, so you're going to want to follow it. If you're an author and would like your short stories or poetry showcased on the podcast, as well as Facebook page for the week, you can get a hold of us in the link in the bio. And that's where you can also find the link to the Facebook page as well. But thank you to everyone who listens from iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you might be listening from. I truly do appreciate it. So let's get started, shall we? This week's author is one that I've recently just learned about, and I've really enjoyed him. And since researching him and his life, I have found out some extremely fascinating things about this man, like the rumor that his body was buried facing downwards. And like Franz Kafka, burned some of his work so make sure you're checking out the Facebook page because there's tons of cool stuff on there and he is one that definitely does not fail to fascinate the senses but with that we are going to read Nikolai Gogol this week Nikolai Gogol (laughs) and with that let's get started shall we the Kalash The town of B had become very lively since the cavalry regiment had taken up its quarters in it. Up to that date, it had been mortally wearisome there. When you happened to pass through the town and glanced at its little mud houses with their incredibly gloomy aspect, the pen refuses to express what you felt. You suffered a terrible uneasiness, as if you had just lost all of your money at play, or had committed some terrible blunder in company. The plaster covering the houses soaked by the rain had fallen away in many places from their walls, which from white had become streaked and spotted, whilst old reeds served to thatch them. Following a custom very common in the towns of South Russia, the chief of police has long since had all the trees in the gardens cut down to improve the view. One never meets anything in the town unless it's a cock crossing the road, full of dust and soft as a pillow. At the slightest rain, this dust is turned into mud, and then all of the streets are filled with pigs. Displaying to all their grave faces the utter shock such grunts that travelers only think of pressing their horses to get away from them as soon as possible. Sometimes, some country gentleman of the neighborhood, the owner of a dozen serfs, passes in a vehicle which is a kind of compromise between a carriage and a cart, surrounded by sacks of flour, and whipping up his bay mare with her colt trotting by her side. The aspect of the marketplace is mournful enough. The tailor's house sticks out very stupidly, not squarely to the front but sideways. Facing it is a brick house with two windows unfinished for 15 years past, and further on a large wooden market stall standing by itself and painted mud cuddler. 
this doll, which was to serve as a model, was built by the chief of police in the time of his youth before he got into the habit of falling asleep directly after dinner and of drinking a kind of decoction of dried gooseberries every evening. All around the rest of the marketplace are nothing but palings, but in the center are some little sheds where a packet of round cakes, a stout woman in a red dress, a bar of soap, some pounds of bitter almonds, some lead, cotton, and two shopmen playing at Svekia, a game resembling quoits, are always to be seen. But on the arrival of the cavalry regiment, everything changed. The streets became more lively and more quite another aspect. Often from their little houses, the inhabitants would see a tall and well-made officer with a plumed hat pass by on his way to the quarters of one of the comrades to discuss the chances of promotion or the qualities of new tobacco, or perhaps to risk at play his carriage, which might indeed be called the carriage of all the regiment, since it belonged in turn to every one of them. Today, it was the major who drove out in it. Tomorrow, it was seen in the lieutenant's coach house. And a week later, the major's servant was again greasing its wheels. The long hedges separating the houses were suddenly covered with soldiers' caps exposed to the sun, gray frieze cloaks hung in the doorways, and mustaches harsh and bristling as themselves everywhere, but above all the market, over the shoulders of the women of the place who flocked there from all sides to make their purchases, the officers lent great animation to the society at B. Society consisted, up till then, of the judge who was living with the deacon's wife and the chief of police, a very sensible man, but one who slept all day, long from dinner till evening, and from evening till dinner time. This general liveliness was still farther increased when the town of B became the residence of the general commanding the brigade to which the regiment belonged. Many gentlemen of the neighborhood, whose very existence no one had ever suspected, began to come into the town with the intention of calling on the officers, or perhaps of playing bank, a game concerning which they had up till then only a very confused notion occupied as they were with their crops and the commissions of their wives and hare hunting. I'm very sorry that I cannot recollect for what the reason the general made up his mind one fine day to give it a grand dinner. The preparations were overwhelming. The clatter of knives in the kitchen was heard as far as the town gates. The whole of the market was laid under contributions to be satisfied with hasty puddings and cakes and flour. The little courtyard of the house occupied by the general was crowded with vehicles. The company only consisted of men, officers, and gentlemen of the neighborhood. Amongst these latter was above all conspicuous Pythagoras, Pegasrovatich, Tetrutovsky, one of the leading aristocrats of the district of B and most fiery orator of the nobility elections and the owner of a very elegant turnout. He had served in a cavalry regime and had even passed for one of its most accomplished officers, having constantly shown himself at all the balls and parties wherever his regiment was quartered. Information respecting him may be asked of all the young ladies in the districts of Tambov and Simbursk. He would very probably have further extended his reputation in the districts if he had not obliged to leave the service in consequence 
of one of those affairs which are spoken of as a very unpleasant business. Had he given or received a blow? I cannot say with certainty, but what is indisputable is that he was asked to send his resignation. However, this accident had no unpleasant effect upon the esteem in which he had been held up till then. Turkotowski always wore a coat of military cut, spurs, and mustache in order not to have supposed that he had served in the infantry, a branch of the service upon which he lavished the most contemptuous expressions. He frequented the numerous fairs to which flocked the whole of the population of southern Russia, consisting of nursemaids, tall girls, and burly gentlemen who go there in vehicles of such strange aspect that no one has ever seen their match even in a dream. He instinctively guessed the spot in which the regiment of the cavalry was to be found and never failed to introduce himself to the officers. On perceiving them as he bounded gracefully from his light Vedon and soon made acquaintance with them, at the last election he had given to the whole of the nobility a grand dinner during which he had declared that if he were elected marshal, he would put all gentlemen on the best possible footing. He usually behaved after the fashion of a great noble. He had married a rather pretty lady with a dowry of 200 serfs and some thousands of rubles. This money was at once employed in the purchase of six fine horses, some gilt bronze locks, and a tame monkey. He further engaged a French cook. The 200 peasants of the lady, as well as the 200 more belongings to the gentleman, were mortgaged to the bank. In a word, he was a regular nobleman. Besides himself, several other gentlemen were amongst the general's guests, but it is not worthwhile speaking of them. The officers of the regiment, amongst whom were the colonel and the fat major, formed the majority of the present. The general himself was rather stout, a good officer, nevertheless, according to his subordinates. He had a rather deep bass voice. The dinner was magnificent. There were sturgeons, sterlets, bustards, asparagus, quail, partridges, mushrooms. The flavors of all these dishes supplied an irrefutable proof of the sobriety of the cook during the 24 hours preceding the dinner. Four soldiers, who had been given him as assistants, had not ceased working all night, knife in hand, at the composition of the ragouts and jellies. The immense quantity of long-necked bottles mingled with shorter ones, holding claret and madeira, the fine summer day, the wide-open windows, the plates piled up with ice on the table, crumpled shirt fronts of the gentlemen in plain clothes, and a brisk, noisy conversation now dominated by the general's voice, now besprinkled with champagne, were all in perfect harmony. The guests rose from the table with a pleasant feeling of repletion, and after having lit their pipes, all stepped out, coffee cups in hand, onto the veranda. We can see her now, said the general. Here, my dear fellow, added he, addressing his aide-de-camp, an active, well-made young officer. Have the bay mare brought here. You shall see for yourselves, gentlemen. All these words the general took along Polo at his pipe. She's not quite recovered yet. There is not a decent stable in this cursed little place, but she is not bad-looking. Puff, puff, the general here lit at the smoke which he had kept in his mouth till then. A little mare. It is long since your excellency, puff, 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 condensed to buyer, asked Tegurchowski, puff, 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 not very long. I had her from the breeding establishment two years ago. And did your excellency condense to take her ready broken or to have her broken in here yourself? Puff, 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 here. 
As he spoke, the general disappeared behind a cloud of smoke. At that, the soldier jumped out of the stable. Trampling of a horse hoofs was heard, and another soldier with immense mustaches and wearing a long white tunic appeared, leading by the bridle the terrified and quivering mare, which suddenly rearing lifted him off his feet. Come, come, Agrafina Avanova, said he, leading her towards the veranda. The mare's name was Agrafina Avanova, strong and bold as a southern beauty. She suddenly became motionless. The general began to look at her with evident satisfaction and left off smoking. The colonel himself went down the steps and patted her neck. The major ran his hand down her legs and all the other officers clicked their tongues at her. Tekker Tatoski left the veranda to take up position beside the mare. The soldier who held her bridle drew himself up and stared fixedly at the guests. She's very fine, very fine, said Tekertowski, a very well-shaped beast. Will your excellency allow me to ask whether she is a good goer? She goes well, but that idiot of a doctor, Deuce Takem, has given her some balls which made her sneeze for the last two days. She is a fine beast, a very fine beast. Has your excellency a turnout to match the horse? Turnout? But she's a saddle horse. I know. I put the question, Your Excellency, to know if you have an equipage worthy of your other horses. No, I have not much in the way of equipages. I must admit that for some time past, I have been wanting to buy a calash, such as they build nowadays. I have written about it to my brother, who is now in St. Petersburg, but I do not know whether he will be able to send me one. It seems to me, Your Excellency, remarked the Colonel, that there are no better calashes than those of Vienna. You are right. Puff, puff, puff. I have an excellent calash, Your Excellency, a real Viennese calash, said Tucker Totsky, that in which you came. Oh, no, I make use of that for ordinary service, but the other is something extraordinary. It is as a light as a feather, and if you sit in it, it seems as if your nurse is rocking you in a cradle. It is very comfortable, then? Extremely comfortable. The cushions, the springs, everything else are perfect. Oh, that is good. And what a quantity of things can be packed away in it. I've never seen anything like it, Your Excellency. When I was still in the service, there was room enough for a body to stow away 10 bottles of rum, 20 pounds of tobacco, six uniforms, and two pipes, the longest pipes imaginable, Your Excellency. And in the pockets inside, you could stow away a whole bullock. That is very good. It'll cost you 4,000 rubles, Your Excellency. It ought to be good at that price. Did you buy it yourself? No, Your Excellency, I had it by chance. It was bought by one of my oldest friends, a fine fellow, with whom you would be very well pleased. We are very intimate. What is mine is his, and what is his is mine. I won it from him at a game of cards. Would Your Excellency have the kindness to honor me at dinner tomorrow? You could see my calash. I don't know what to say. Alone I could not, but if you would allow me to come with these officers, I beg of them to come too. I shall esteem it a great honor, gentlemen, to have the pleasure of seeing you at my house. The colonel, the major, and the other officers thanks, thanked Tucker Towski. I am of opinion myself, Your Excellency, that if one buys anything, it should be good. It is not worth the trouble of getting if it turns out bad. If you do me the honor of calling on me tomorrow, I will show you some improvements I have introduced on my estate. The general looked at him again and puffed out a fresh cloud of smoke. Dr. Towski had charmed with his notion of inviting the officers and mentally ordered in advance all manner of dishes for their entertainment. He smiled at these gentlemen who on their part appeared to increase their show of attention towards him and was noticeable from the expression of their eyes and the little half nods that they bestowed upon him. 
His bearing assumed a certain ease, and his voice expressed his great satisfaction. Your Excellency will make the acquaintance of the mistress of the house. That will be most agreeable to me, said the general, twirling his mustache. Tukertowski was firmly resolved to return home at once in order to make all necessary preparations in good time. He had already taken his hat, but a strange fatality caused him to remain for some time at the general's. The card tables had been set out, and all the company separating the groups of four scattered itself about the room, and lights were brought in. Tukertowski did not know whether he ought to sit down to whist, but as the officers invited him, he thought that the rules of good breeding obliged him to accept. He sat down. I do not know how a glass of punch found itself at its elbow, but he drank it without thinking, and after playing two rubbers, he found another glass close to his hand, which he drank in the same way, not without remarking. It really is time for me to go, gentlemen. You are listening to the Nighttime Short Stories podcast, where we read a new short story from long ago to modern day authors every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So be sure to check out the Facebook page under the same name, there's a link in the bio, for daily information, photos, quotes, and interesting facts and bios on authors showcased for the week. If you know of anyone that you think would enjoy the podcast as well, please be sure to share it out. And again, thank you for listening. It really is time for me to go, gentlemen. He began to play a fresh rubber, however. The conversation, which was going on in every corner of the room, took an especial turn. Those who were playing whists quiet enough, but the others talked a great deal. A captain had taken up his position on the sofa and leaning against a cushion pipe in mouth. He captivated the attention of a circle of guests gathered about him by his eloquent narrative of amorous adventures. A very stiff gentleman, whose arms were so short that they looked like two potatoes hanging by his sides, listened to him with a very satisfied expression, and from time to time exerted to pull himself some tobacco pouch out of his coattail pocket. A somewhat brisk discussion of cavalry drill had arisen in another corner, and Dr. Towski, who had twice already played a knave for a king, mingled in the conversation by calling out from his place, in what year or what regiment, without noticing that very often his question had no application whatever. At length, a few minutes before supper, play came to an end. Dukertowski could remember that he had won a great deal, but he did not take up his winnings, and after rising, stood for some time in position of a man who had no handkerchief in his pocket. They sat down to supper. As might be expected, wine was not lacking, and Tukertowski kept involuntarily filling his glass with it, for he was surrounded by bottles. A lengthy conversation took place at table, but the guests carried it on after a strange fashion. A colonel who had served in 1812 described a battle which had never taken place, and besides, no one ever could make out why he took the cork and stuck it into a pie. They began to make and break up at three in the morning. The coachmen were obliged to take several of them in their arms like bundles, and Tukertowski himself, despite his aristocratic pride, bowed so low to the company that he took home two thistles and his mustache. The coachman, who drove him home, found everyone asleep. He routed out some trouble, the valet, who, after having ushered his master through the hall, handed him over to a maidservant. Tukertowski followed her as well as he could to the best room and stretched himself beside his pretty young wife, 
who was sleeping in a nightgown as white as snow. The shock of her husband falling on the bed woke her, and she stretched out her arms, opened her eyes, closed them quickly, and opened them again quite wide with a half-vexed air. Seeing that her husband did not pay the slightest attention to her, she turned over on the other side, rested her fresh and rosy cheek on her hand, and went to sleep again. It was late, that is, according to country customs, when the lady awoke again. Her husband was snoring more loudly than ever. She recollected that he had come home at four o'clock and, not wishing to awaken him, got up alone and put on her slippers, which her husband had sent for her from St. Petersburg, in a white dressing gown which fell about her like the waters of a fountain. Then she passed into her dressing room and, after washing in water as fresh as herself, went to her toilet table. She looked at herself twice in the glass and thought she looked very pretty that morning. This circumstance, a very insignificant one apparently, caused her to stay two hours longer than usual before her glass. She dressed herself very tastefully and went into the garden. The weather was splendid. It was one of those finest days of the summer. The sun, which had almost reached the meridian, shed its most ardent rays, but a pleasant coolness reigned under the leafy arcades of the mistress of the house, I had quite forgotten that it was noon at least, and that her husband was still asleep. Already she heard the snores of two coachmen and a groom who were taking their siesta in the table. After having dined copiously, and she was still sitting in a bower from which she deserted Hyde Road could be seen, when all at once her attention was caught by a light cloud of dust rising in the distance. After looking at it for some moments, she ended by making out several vehicles closely following one another. First came a light clash with two places in which was a general wearing his large and glittering epaulets with the colonel. This was followed by the other places, the captain and the aide-de-camp with two lieutenants. Further on, the regimental vehicle, the present owner of which was a major, and behind another in which the packed five officers, one of his comrades' knees, the procession being closed by three more, on three fine bays. Are they coming here? thought the mistress of the house. Good heavens, yes, they are leaving the main road. She gave a cry, clasped her hands, and ran straight for the flower beds to her bedroom, where her husband was still sleeping soundly. Get up, get up, get up at once, she cried, pulling him by the arm. What? What's the matter? he murmured, Tokartowski, stretching his limbs without opening his eyes. Get up, get up. Visitors have come to you here. Visitors. Visitors? What visitors? After saying these words, he uttered a little plaintive grunt like that of a sucking calf. Mm, let me kiss you. My dear, get up at once, for heaven's sake. The general has come with all of his officers. Oh, goodness, you've got a thistle in your mustache. The general? Has he come already? By what the deuce do they want to wake me? And the dinner? Is the dinner ready? What dinner? But haven't I ordered a dinner? A dinner? You got home at four o'clock in the morning and you didn't answer a single word to all of my questions. I did not wake you since you had so little sleep. Dr. Teske, his eyes staring out of his head, remained motionless for some moment as the thought of a thunderbolt struck him. All at once he jumped out of bed in his shirt. Idiot that I am, he claimed, clasping his hand to his forehead. I'd invited them to dinner. What is to be done? Are they far off? They will be here in a moment. My dear, hide yourself. Oh, there's somebody. Hi there. You girl, come here, you fool. What are you afraid of? The officers are coming here. Tell them I am not home, that I went out early this morning, and that I'm not coming back. Do you understand? Go and repeat it to all the servants. Be off quick. Having uttered these words, he hurriedly 
slipped into a dressing gown and ran off to shut himself in the coach house, which he thought was the safest hiding place, but he fancied that he might be noticed in the corner which he had taken refuge. This will be better, he thought to himself, letting down the steps of the nearest vehicle, which happened to be the clash. He jumped inside, closed the door, and as further the precaution, covered himself with a leather apron. There he remained, wrapped in his dressing gown in a doubled-up position. During this time, the equipages had drawn up before the porch. The general got out of his carriage and shook himself, followed by the colonel, arranging the feathers in his hat. After him came the stout major, his saber under his arm, and the slim lieutenants. Whilst the mounted officers also alighted. The master is not at home, said the servant, appearing at the top of the flight of the stairs. What? Not at home? Is he coming home for dinner, is he not? No, he is not. He has gone out for the day and will not be back till this time tomorrow. Bless me, said the general. But what the deuce? What a joke, said the colonel, laughing. No, no, such things are inconceivable, said the general angrily. If he could not receive us, why did he invite us? I cannot understand your excellency how it is possible to act in such a manner, observed the young officer. What, said the general, who always made an officer under the rank of captain, repeat his remarks twice over. I wondered, your excellency, how anyone could do such a thing. Quite so. If anything has happened, he ought to have let us know. There is nothing to be done, your excellency. We had better go back home, said the colonel. Certainly there is nothing to be done. However, we can see the clash without him. Probably he has not taken it with him. Come here, my man. What does your excellency want? Show us your master's new clash. Have the kindness to step this way to the coach house. The general entered the coach house, followed by his officers. Let me pull it a little forward, your excellency, said the servant. It is rather dark here. That will do. The general and his officers walked around the clash, carefully inspecting the wheels and the springs. There is nothing remarkable about it, said the general. It is a very ordinary clash. Nothing to look at, said the colonel. There is absolutely nothing good about it. It seems to me, Your Excellency, that it is not worth 4,000 rubles, remarked the young officer. What? I said, Your Excellency, that I do not think that it is worth 4,000 rubles. 4,000 it is not worth two. Perhaps, however, inside it is well finished. Unbutton the apron. Dokrotowski appeared before the officer's eyes, clad in his dressing gown, and doubled up in singular fashion. Hello, there you are, said the astonished general. And he covered Dokrotowski up again and went off with his officers. Until next time. You have been listening to the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and come back every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new author of the week. Thank you for listening. Until next time.